Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the immortal words of Ron Burgundy, a.k.a. Anchorman, played by Will Ferrell, well, that escalated quickly. When we look at the story that we have in today's gospel, that's what I can't help but think of. We see Jesus giving his programmatic message. This is his his initial messianic agenda as he is setting it out to the Jews gathered in the synagogue at Nazareth, his hometown. And when he does it, does it, how do they respond? Well, at first, as he sets the scroll down, having proclaimed that prophecy from Isaiah, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, that he comes to bring release to the captives, the forgiveness of sins, and then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How do they respond at first? With wonderment, yeah, all right, yes, slapping hands, patting each other on the back. Okay, maybe this is it. The Messiah is right here in our midst, the one we have been waiting for. God's word, his promise has been fulfilled. Yes, but Jesus isn't done yet. Keeps preaching. And after only a couple more moments, they say, no, and their wonderment turns to wrath to the point that they are ready to kill him right then and there. What happened? How did this escalate so quickly? What did Jesus say that earned their ire? Well, I think there's actually a a succession of stumbling stones that Jesus set before them so that by the time he finishes his sermon, they just can't take it anymore. So I want to walk through the text and see each of these stumbling stones and see how they increasingly raise the temperature of those who are gathered so that finally they think that this would-be Messiah ought not to live any longer. Now that first stumbling stone is hinted at straight away. Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Their first reaction, their initial impression is, all right! But remember again where this is taking place. It's in Nazareth, right? It's in Jesus' own hometown where he grew up with his earthly family. And so they go right away to this question. Hey, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, there's a way to hear that where it's more kind of harmless and they're just saying, hey, this is Joseph's son, right? You know, local boy made good. And maybe there's a little bit of that. But I think even more, it's these people who are in Jesus' own hometown in Nazareth, and as others have questioned, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe in that moment, they themselves are wondering, could we really raise up a Messiah here in our town from these humble origins? Look, we love our hometown. You know, we're Nazarites all the way down. But could this really be the Messiah? Isn't this Joseph's son? That first stumbling stone, see, is Jesus' origins, where he comes from. Because it seems so humble, so nondescript, so un-son of God-like. And we have to say that this is an objection, a criticism of Jesus as the Messiah that has followed him, that has followed Christianity throughout the ages. There was an Enlightenment philosopher, a guy by the name of Gotthold Lessing. And Gotthold Lessing articulated it this way. He said, how could anyone cross this ugly ditch 
between history and universality. What he means is, how could a simple, humble rabbi from some backwoods town of Nazareth be proclaimed as the universal Messiah and Savior of the world? It's a fair question. Theologians have called this the scandal of particularity. The scandal of particularity. And it's a scandal that Jesus is so particular that this particular man from this particular place that he should be proclaimed and exalted as the Messiah, the very Lamb of God. Maybe you've wondered this as well. How do we respond to that objection about Jesus' origins? Well, I think there's two ways that we could do so. The first is, if you will, kind of the apologetic response or the defense of the faith response. When somebody brings us up and says, yeah, wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus of Nazareth, he's the savior of the world? What we can say in response is, yeah, that is kind of strange, isn't it? That we should still be talking about this itinerant rabbi from 2,000 years ago who hails from some backwater of the empire and who did not himself write down a single word, whose ministry only went on, his active ministry, for something like three years. That is weird that we would still be thinking and talking and praising and worshiping this guy still today unless... He was who he claimed to be, unless he did what we believe he did. Look, it is crazy. I'm not going to argue with you there. It is absolutely nutso if you and I were just to pick out some random dude from 2,000 years ago in the middle of nowhere and to say, that's my Messiah. That's the guy that I want to worship, that I want to devote my life to. Of course that'd be crazy. Unless he really did rise from the dead, in which case that changes everything. The reason that you and I are still sitting here today when you could be doing sensible things like sleeping in or reading the newspaper, drinking your coffee, is because Jesus, this humble rabbi out of Nazareth, was in fact, is in fact, the Son of God, the risen King. So that's the apologetic response. But there's also a more evangelical gospel-based response, which is to say, yes, look, And this is where the Son of God comes from. As we said last week, he manifests himself in mundane ways and in mundane places. By showing up and by being raised in this out-of-the-way hamlet, Jesus dignifies every little place that you and I might find ourselves, like Manistee and Benzie counties. And he says, yes, my grace and my presence is able to erupt there, too that I make myself known in the unlikeliest and most unexpected of places. That's just how I roll. That's our Lord. That's Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, your Savior. But it was a stumbling block for those in the synagogue that day, and it's still a stumbling block for many today. But perhaps if that was all, they still would have been hailing Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus himself now goes on in his response, which, is impl- which implies that second stumbling stone. Jesus goes on and he says, doubtless you're going to quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you did in Capernaum, do here as well. 
Now, you might hear those words from Jesus and think, you know what, he's being kind of provocative, even antagonistic. Like, Jesus, aren't you trying to to curry favor? All they asked was, isn't this Joseph's son? Why is it that now you're pressing back so hard here? But I think that Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And he's uh, directing himself to, he's, he's addressing their second stumbling stone with regards to his method of ministry. And there may be something here that suggests this to us. When they ask, isn't this Joseph's son? It might not just be the case that they're asking about Jesus' origins. Now, you might have noticed in reading the Gospels that we don't hear a whole lot about Joseph. Joseph is there in the nativity counts. He's still there when Jesus, 12 years old, goes to the temple. But after that, he pretty much falls off. He disappears out of it altogether. When Jesus uh, performs his first sign that we saw last week of changing water into wine, Mary is there, but there's no Joseph. And in fact, church tradition through the ages has said, yes, actually, Joseph died shortly before Jesus launched his ministry. Before he went public as the Messiah, Joseph perished. And so perhaps there's something more personal and more biting in that question of the crowds. Isn't this Joseph's son? Doesn't just question his origins, but also this. If he's the Messiah, why didn't he heal his own dad? If he really is the Savior, why didn't he save Joseph? This would explain why Jesus responds by saying, You're going to quote to me, physician, heal yourself. What you did at Capernaum, why didn't you do in your own hometown? Physician, why don't you heal your own family? If you were able to do these miracles over in Capernaum, why can't you do them here in Nazareth when your own earthly dad is dying? Whether or not you buy that explanation, and it's compelling to me, I think there is something here in terms of their questioning his method because it's no doubt the case that Jesus doesn't heal everybody who's sick. He doesn't heal every lame man. He doesn't open the eyes of every person who is blind. He doesn't open the ears of every person who is deaf. We see this throughout his ministry as this question continues to trail after him. Think of uh, of his friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and they come to him, Lord, if you had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. Now, in that case, Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. But over and over again, people are wondering, if you are willing, if you are capable, you could do this. Why don't you do it all the time? And you don't need me to tell you that we still have this question about God's methods. Like, Lord, if I pray to you, if I need you, if I call on you, why don't you do this thing? Why don't you take away that sickness? Why don't you heal my family member? Why don't you lift this burden of anxiety and depression from off my shoulders? Why don't you help, Lord? Doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair, these ways that are so mysterious, this method that is beyond our knowing. And any preacher who stands up here, I've told you this many times before, and says, well, let me tell you exactly why that's happened. It's because of the the secret sin that this people or this community harbors. That's why that calamity happened. And if only they had been a little bit more obedient, a little bit more faithful, if only they had prayed a little bit more, then God would have fixed it, then he would have answered them. If only their faith would have been a little bit stronger, then perhaps that disease would have been driven away. Anytime we give explanations like that, we sell some cheap comfort that is unfaithful to the witness of the scriptures themselves. We say that many times, More often than we care to admit, we simply do not know 
why. The only conclusive answer that we get in this life is the silence of our Savior on the cross. As they continue to ridicule him, continue to heckle him, and say, if you are the Son of God, save yourself. Physician, heal yourself. What we saw you do in all those other places, do now on the cross. And he doesn't do it. Refuses to do it. Because Jesus' goal is not just to put band-aids on a broken creation, but to go down and to fix the sickness at its root. And only by dying and rising can he give to you and me the ultimate solution, the truest, deepest answer to all of these questions that we have in this life. That's what we cling to. The mysterious ways of our Lord made manifest in our Lord Jesus. But if ever there was a stumbling stone, this no doubt is it. And so we fix our eyes on the cross, on our Savior Jesus, trusting that his mercy is faithful in the midst of these mysteries. Jesus isn't done yet with his sermon. He's already unearthed a couple of these stumbling stones about his origins and, and his methods, but he detects that there is even more, a, a deeper misunderstanding, a greater misunderstanding among those who were gathered. And this one, he doesn't want to go unsaid. He doesn't want it to be unaddressed. And this one turns out to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So Jesus continues. And he says, you guys knew, right, that uh, there were lots of widows who were hungry in the time of Elijah. And yet, who did he help but the widow at Zarephath in Sidon? And he says, there were lots of people who were struggling with leprosy at the time of the prophet Elisha. And yet, he went to no one except to Naaman the Syrian. Now, it seems like a total non sequitur. Like, what is Jesus talking about here? What do, what do these stories, these Old Testament tales have in common? Well, in both of these cases, both Naaman the leper and the widow of Zarephath, in both of these cases, these were non-Jews. These were Gentile people. These were folks who were considered outside of the elect people of God. They were outsiders. They were ones who were not privy to the promises of God. But Jesus says, look, this is how God is working. This is what he is up to. He is not just giving his blessings to these elect people, but now his election is spreading out. Now his blessing is, is, will not be constrained to just the, the privileged insiders. Jesus is saying, in other words, that his mission is going to go further, that his grace is going to break the bounds that they have tried to keep it in. See, at first, everybody was ready to jump on the Messianic bandwagon when it seemed like, hey, this is cool. We're getting all kinds of new special privileges. Here's our guy, the anointed of, of God, who's going to come and bind up our broken hearts, who's going to help us to see. And as for all the rest of those Gentiles, y'all in trouble, should have worshipped the God of Israel, just like we were saying. But now Jesus says, oh, you got it all wrong. The mission of God will not be constrained. The blessing of God will not be penned in. Instead, it needs to break those bonds and flood this world. Jesus, when he lays down his life and when he shows forth the heart of God, it is because God so loved the privileged few, the proud. No, for God so loved the world. Jew and Gentile alike, slave and free, man and woman, each and every individual. That's who Christ has come for. 
And incidentally, this is really good news for you and me, who, as far as I know, are pretty much all of Gentile stock here, right? We are counted among that number. We are the beneficiaries of that blessing that pours over, that love that is given to each and every one of us in Christ. It's good news for you and me. But it's also a cautionary tale. Because now we can find ourselves today, two millennia later, in a position not unlike the Jews then, where we think now as Christians, well, we're the insiders. We're the ones that God takes care of. As for the rest of the world, you should have worshipped the true God. God still desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And here's an even more wondrous thing. He still uses sinners like you and me, who sometimes have hearts that are too proud to be sent out to bear forth his mission, to share his heart for our neighbors. But this was the stumbling stone that finally broke that camel's back, that caused the Jews who were gathered there in the synagogue in Jesus' own hometown to say, ah, enough is enough. And so it escalates so quickly as they say, no, we're not just going to, you know, revoke our tithes or get up and walk out. We are going to get up and we are going to carry you out. And so they take Jesus and they, they forcibly, physically lead him out to the edge of the town. They prepare to throw him off the edge of a cliff. I've almost never had this happen at the end of a sermon. But here it is to our Lord Jesus. And then he passes right through them and goes away. There's a couple of things about that that bring forth the gloriousness of the gospel for us. And I want to conclude with this by sharing just a, a quick illustration that, that kind of brings this home from a movie called Calvary. And I really recommend this movie, although it's really hard to watch and definitely not for younger audiences. It tells the story of this priest in a rural Irish parish, a guy named Father James. And the movie starts out this way. Father James is in the confessional booth. He's starting to nod off, kind of falling asleep a little bit. When a guy comes in on the other side and he says to him, these are the first words in the movie, Father James, I am going to end you. And proceeds to tell him the when and the where of where he intends to bring Father James' life to an end. From then on, the rest of the movie isn't so much a who did it as a who will do it. You don't know who was in the confessional booth with him, and so you're, you're trying to figure out, is it the, the lonely millionaire? Is it the, the disgruntled uh, custodian? Who is it going to be of all these different characters in the movie? And you're really wondering. But what struck me in watching the film, and it only hit me about halfway through, is suddenly I realized, wait a second. He didn't leave. Like, the guy just told him he was going to kill him. He knows who it is, where and when he's going to do it, and yet... He stays willingly. I'm not going to tell you how the movie ends. I recommend you see it yourself. But just that point that he stays willingly, even though he had the power and the ability to leave. And so for our Lord Jesus here, in that moment, as he's passing through the crowd that has just tried to throw him off the cliff, he knows, first of all, what their intentions are if he didn't already. And secondly, we know that he has the power, if he so chooses, to evade it. And yet he doesn't. 
He goes every step along the way, knowing full well what awaits him for the sake of you and me. All the way to the point that as he goes to the cross, he knows he could call down legions of angels and call off the whole thing at any moment. But he doesn't. But because he has come to set you and me free. And you know what? This is good news for us. It's good news for me. Because if I'm honest, when I look at that crowd so filled with wrath and anger, which a moment before was filled with joy and excitement and exaltation, if I'm honest with myself, I can recognize myself among them with my own heart, which can seemingly go from joy to anger quicker than a Porsche can go from zero to 60 with my own attitudes, which so often can turn sour toward my own family, toward the people I love and care about the most. When I look into my own heart, I see one that is able, so prone to frustrations, petty little grievances with others. When I look at this crowd, I can see myself. But it's for that crowd, and it's for you and me, that our Messiah went willingly, patiently, and so often as I turn from him and turn toward anger, unfailingly it seems, so he meets you and me with his mercy unfailingly. And make no mistake, it always escalates quickly. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.